Can you tell what topic we might be speaking on this morning? Grace. Yeah. Um, This morning we're going to be looking at a striking passage in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, starting at verse 10. But before we read that, I want you to come back with me to a moment in about 1406 B.C., a day that is recorded in the book of Joshua. It's recorded in Joshua chapter 8. And I want you to imagine this scene with me. The people of Israel have just recently entered the promised land, the land of Canaan. And they are now under the new leadership of Joshua. Moses had left them on the other side of the Jordan, and he went off by himself. And the Bible says that he died there, that the Lord took him home. He never got to set foot in the promised land. Imagine that. The man who led Israel for 40 years towards his promise. But he himself never got to go in because he'd been disobedient. One occasion, one occasion, he was disobedient to God. And I want you to remember that during this message this morning. See, Moses presumptuously struck a rock, and he never got to inherit the promise of God. And so under new leadership, the Israelites went across the Jordan with Joshua leading. But Moses had given instructions before he died. And you can read it in Deuteronomy chapter 27. The Israelites were to do something when they came into the land, and Joshua faithfully carried out exactly what Moses had specified. See, after they had sacked the city of Jericho, you remember the walls come tumbling down. They then sacked the city of Ai. And that meant they had a beachhead from which they could take the rest of their inheritance. And so first they went north, then they went south, and they conquered every city and took the land as God told them to do. But at that moment when Jericho and Ai had fallen and they had their first moment of pause, They were near the city of Shechem, and Joshua divided all the people into two groups, six tribes in one group and six tribes in another. And he had the leaders of six tribes go up onto one mountain, Mount Gerizim, and the leaders from the other six tribes go up onto another mountain directly opposite, Mount Ebal. And from these two mountaintops, they had kind of a church service. And I don't know if you've ever been to a liturgical church. I grew up in the Anglican church, so it was very familiar for me where they would read from the Book of Common Prayer. And the the minister would say one thing, and the people, because they had the book in front of them, they would respond with the correct saying. And this is what kind of happened in between those two mountains. Two things, something was said, and the people responded. Something was said, and the people responded. You had the leaders on the, of the six tribes on Mount Gerizim and the leaders on the six tribes of Mount Ebal. And they cried out from these mountaintops. From Mount Gerizim, they called out all the promises of blessing if the people would obey God. Here was God reminding his people of the covenant that he had with them through the law of Moses. And he said to them, if you will obey, there will be blessings for you for obeying. And you can read that in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. He said, you know, I'll bless you in the land. I will look after your crops. No plagues will come near you. I will drive out all of your enemies. All the blessings if they would obey. 
But then from Mount Ebal, the other six leaders, and boy, it would have been a bummer to be had those six, because they're crying out all the curses if the people disobeyed God's law. And they went through them, all the things that they could expect. And how many of you know that in Israel's history, that came to pass? Because Israel was not obedient, and therefore they were handed over to their enemies. God had said in this law, and here on this particular day, coming into the promised land, and they cried out the curses. The promises from Mount Gerizim and the curses from Mount Ebal. And when the leaders cried out these things, all the people of Israel heard them. And after each promise and each curse, they said, Amen. Now, sometimes you say amen because you're excited when the preacher says something or during a worship song. But this amen meant we understand. We get it. We know that God, what God has said in his law, and we accept it. The blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. We understand completely. And I want to show you something extraordinary this morning. So sidetrack if you want. I think it's interesting. Hopefully you do. In 2019, the most extraordinary archaeological find was made on Mount Ebal. And we'll put a picture of it up. Hopefully. There you go. This is a folded lead tablet that was found on Mount Ebal just a few years ago. It doesn't look much like lead, but it's been in the dirt up there for about 3,500 years. And this is a little lead tablet that at one time would have opened very easily and was inscribed on the inside. Dr. Scott Stripling and his team found this tablet on Mount Ebal at the site of an ancient altar that they have discovered that dates right to the time of Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 7, it says that on this day that we've been talking about, when the curses were cried out from Mount Ebal, Joshua built an altar there. And they believe they found that very altar And that's where they found this little lead tablet. Well, so what's remarkable about this tablet? Well, it's very small. Look at how small this is. Okay, like, that's how big it is. It's a tiny lead tablet, but as soon as it was discovered, the archaeologists knew what it was because we have other examples from the ancient world. But this is one of the oldest that's ever been found, and it's called the cursed tablet. If you open it up and read it, the inscription, and that's something they've done. But they couldn't open it on the site because it would literally have fallen apart in their hands. And so they sent it to Norway. They put it under special infrared reading, infrared lighting, and to read it. And what they found inside was it's got inscription on it that include 40 characters that they recognized immediately, including the name. Yahweh. And so why am I telling you all of this this morning? Because what we're about to read in Galatians 3 is stunning, I believe. Listen to Paul's word in Galatians 3.10, starting at verse 10. Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all these things, which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. And that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. If you were to go back one verse to verse 9, which is called the blessing of Abraham, you would read these words. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. And that's a great uh, verse because it deals with the blessings that have come to us like Abraham. We believe God's promises, but that leads Paul to write about the opposite of blessing. And so we all know what is the opposite of blessing? Cursing, right. Mount Ebal instead of Mount Gerizim. And it's the two things in the law, the promise of blessing, but also the promise of cursing, depending on whether we are obedient or disobedient. And what Paul says next is really quite shocking. For as many, or everybody, as are of the works of the law are under the curse. And so in this passage, Paul uses what we call the locative of sphere. It's a grammatical term, which means he's talking about two spheres in his language, the sphere of keeping the law and the sphere of living by faith, two different worlds. And Paul says, for all who are in the sphere of working for their acceptance by keeping by God, by keeping the law, they are all under the curse. Now, if we didn't have the benefit that we have today of being able to read the whole New Testament, I wonder if we could have ever thought of such, to say such a thing. Let, it be, let alone be bold enough to actually say it. But here's the great Apostle Paul writing in the strongest terms imaginable. And he's writing it under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For all. Now I'm just going to make this number up. But let's just say there are 3,264,000 uh, million people who are trusting in the law to save them. Okay, a lot of people. That exact number is the number that are under the curse. And that's what Paul says. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And so stop and think about that for a moment. How many times in the Old Testament do the writers of the Old Testament extol the law of God? How many times do you read in the book of Psalms that David sings about delighting in the law of God and how much the law of God does for us. Doesn't he say in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The law of the Lord is perfect, but Paul is writing that all who are under works of the law are under a curse. Is this a massive contradiction in the Bible? And we hear that from people from time to time. And so we better understand very quickly what's going on here. And so let me give you the short answer immediately, and then we'll unpack it. Here's a quick answer. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the law of God. It is, as David said, perfect. It has the potential to be a great blessing, but there is one problem. 
only one individual in the history of the world has ever been able to keep it. And that person, as we can guess, is Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God. Every other human being who ever lived has broken the law of God. And if you break the law of God, you're no longer being spoken to to by Mount Gerizim. You're being spoken to by Mount Ebal, and the curse is upon you. And so if you're going to trust in your ability to keep all of God's laws and therefore present present yourself before him and being accepted, you're, you're already under the curse. When you break God's law, it can no longer bless you, but it only stands to condemn you because you're a lawbreaker. And so, in the spirit of Pastor Don, here's point number one. Why law-keeping can't save you. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all these things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now what Paul does there in the second part of this verse is he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the law itself in Deuteronomy chapter 27. And what is Deuteronomy chapter 27 as we've already talked about? It's a very passage where Moses was telling the people of Israel, when you come into the land, I want six tribes on one mountain, six tribes on the other mountain, and recite all the blessings and the curses. So you know what you can expect, whether you're obedient or disobedient. And this is what Moses had been telling them. And it's the very same chapter. And Moses, and what Moses says, what Paul pulls out here, he says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all these things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So notice some phrases here. First of all, he says all things. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things. You know what that tells us? You don't don't get to pick and choose which commandments you want to keep. It's not enough to say, well, I got nine out of ten of the big ten. You know, it's not enough to say, All of that law of Moses, you know, I kept mostly all of it. I wasn't too good with this one. But hey, what I did outweighs what I didn't keep. No, in order to be considered a law keeper and experience all the blessings of God, you have to continue in all things. James 2, 10, 11 reiterates this. If anyone transgresses the law in one point, they're guilty of breaking it all. You're a lawbreaker. So say you're dragged into court today or tomorrow. Imagine this. And you're charged for theft. You don't get to stand before the judge and say, hold on now a second. I've never murdered anybody. I've never raped anybody. I've never defrauded the government of my taxes. So what? You stole. You're a lawbreaker. You're guilty and you stand there condemned as a lawbreaker. And God says exactly the same thing. He says you've got to do all the things to be considered for keeping the law. Secondly, notice this. Curses everyone who does not continue in all things. So it's not enough to say that you kept the law for 50 years. You've got to, keep, you've got to continue it your whole life. There can never be a day that you have off from keeping the law. This is what they're saying. You know, God, 
I did pretty good. This one year was rough. We were stuck in our homes for COVID. You can't expect me to be perfect that year. I mean, the new laws the government has set up regarding climate change and this and that, you couldn't expect me to, to obey all of those particular things. Listen, you've got to keep all of the law. You've got to keep it your entire life, continuing in all things. This is the standard. And you might say that God's pretty unreasonable. The thing is, it's his law. He's a creator. He made the law and he is in the place to make this demand because he is perfect and sinless. He has never, ever broken the law. He has never gone against the constraints of his own moral principles. God is absolutely perfect. It's his law, so he can demand this standard. To which you might then reply, well, it's all right for him to make such a demand. He's holy. He's perfect. But look, he's living in heaven. He doesn't have to live in this sinful world surrounded by all of our temptations. But he did. Jesus lived the perfect life in God's unblemished holiness. And think about this. The temptations Jesus faced were greater than any you will ever face. From this one perspective, if you're tempted to sin, when does the feeling of temptation go away? When you give in. You're tempted to do something and you don't want to do it. But then you give in and that temptation's no longer there. You've done it. Jesus never gave in. The temptations that he faced were constant, but he went through it perfectly and he never ever sinned. He never gave in to sin in any way. He was the perfect son of God. And so God demands this and he says, I've been perfect for eternity. I am perfect when I come among you as a man and live your life and I demand perfection. John Murray, the the great Scottish theologian said, the question is not how can God being what he is send us to hell? Rather, the question is how can God being what he is not send us to hell? And so the first thing is why can't law saving, why can't law keeping save us? Because nobody keeps the law perfectly. No one in the history of the world except Jesus. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you know that in your own heart. You know you've let yourself down according to your own standards, let alone God's law, holy law. And so this is why law keeping can't save us. Secondly, Paul shows us in the passage why faith and law keeping don't mix. So in other words, you can't say I'm going to believe in God's plan of salvation and I'm going to keep the law as well. And between these two things, that's how God is going to save me. Isn't that what the Judaizers were saying? These are the people that Paul was writing about in Galatians. These are the false teachers telling those early Christians, Jesus is wonderful. He's marvelous. He's come to save you. But you also need to keep the Jewish law. You have to become Jewish first. Otherwise, he can't save you. This is what they were saying. So this is a mix of the life of faith in Jesus 
and law-keeping. And that's what saves us. That's what they're saying. But Paul says, nonsense. Faith and law-keeping don't mix. And so look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And Paul is quoting from the book of Habakkuk here. This is well accepted by the Jews in their own religion that Habakkuk had said that the just shall live by faith. He says no law is mentioned. People are justified by their faith in God. And so he says, as we read, the just shall live by faith. And then verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Paul's saying, you know, he's saying that old law keeping, if you're going to go that route, it has nothing to do with faith. You've got to dot every I, cross every T. You've got to do it. It's not believing, it's doing. And Paul says that just shall live by faith, but law keepers will live by doing. So what he's saying here is there are two completely different roads. And we cannot be saved partly by faith and partly by works. You travel one road or the other. You pick. And you can only be under law or under grace. So let me sidetrack here again for a moment. Someone might read this in Galatians and say, hang on. He's writing to the Galatians. And the Galatians were Gentiles. And they didn't have Moses' law at all. So this issue is kind of difficult for them to understand. But in this passage, Paul never uses the phrase, the law. He talks about law without the definite article, the. He says law. You're either on the road of law or you're on the road of grace. See, even if you're not a Jew, the law of God is written in your heart. And this is his argument in Romans chapter 1, that none of us are without law, whether we're Jew or Gentile. And so for all of us here, God has written it on our hearts, and we are responsible to keep the law according to the light that we've, get, we've been given. But yet nobody does. And so whether you're in Israel, whether you're in Timbuktu, whether you're in Newmarket, nobody keeps the law that is written on their heart. We fall short of God's glory. So faith and law-keeping don't mix. They're two different roads. You're either going to trust God by faith for his salvation or by, for his righteousness, or you're going to try and do every part of the law. And you'd be surprised how many people today try to still do that. They combine the two. Then thirdly, given this huge problem, Paul says how Christ is the answer. Because so far, this is all bad news, isn't it? This is all Mount Ebal. This is all curse. But Paul says the answer is Christ. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
So here is Paul talking about the whole substitutionary atonement, that Jesus came and took our place. We were under the curse because we could not keep God's perfect law, but Jesus came and became a curse for us. So why doesn't Paul say Jesus came and was cursed for us? It says he became a curse. It's the only way for Paul in his language to express how perfectly Christ identified with us, with our sin in that moment. That he took every sin of mankind upon himself. He bore it all and died for it. Now, Paul reference here in verse 13 says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's quoting again from the law of Moses from Deuteronomy 21. And let me just explain for a moment what Moses was talking about when he said that. In the ancient world, they killed people a lot of different ways. But at the time of Moses, they didn't have crucifixion. It was the Persians who brought that in a while later. And it had nothing to do with that time of Moses. But whether a person was stoned to death or if they died in battle by sword or something else happened to them, if the people wanted to completely dishonor them, they would take the the dead body and hang it on a tree for display. Moses says, curse is anyone who hangs on a tree. And in Deuteronomy, it's actually saying, don't do this. Don't dishonor people in this way. And we have an example of it happening in the life of King Saul and Jonathan. If you remember when they died in battle, the Philistines took them and hung them on the walls of Bethshan. And when they did that, it was a sign of the Philistine victory. And it was a dishonoring of the Israelite people as they hung Saul and Jonathan on that wall. And so Moses refers to this practice in the ancient world, and he says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Paul points out now in Galatians 3 that crucifixion, therefore, is considered by the Jews an especially cursed way to die. And so when the Romans started doing this, the Jews couldn't fathom a more shameful way for a person to be executed than to be hung on a tree figuratively. The crosses that they used and the pieces of wood like a tree. And this was a reprehensible and shameful way for anyone to die. And it was reserved even by the Romans for the worst of criminals. Yet Jesus went and he died the most shameful death, cursed. And the Jews believed this, that if a person was crucified, they must be cursed by God. And that's the death that Jesus died. Christ has redeemed us from the curse that we are under because we are lawbreakers having become a curse for us. For it is written, you know, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus took your shame. He took all of your curse before God and he died in your place to bring you back into blessing. Now look again at verse 13. Look at the word redeemed. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. There are three different words used in the law in the New Testament that can be translated redeemed. And they're all wonderful words. But this is the strongest and the most interesting 
of these three words that means redeemed. One of the words that is used very often in Paul's writings and in other writers in the New Testament is the Greek word agorazo, which comes from the Greek root word agora. And that actually means marketplace. And if you've ever gone to Greece and you've visited ancient cities, you know that the central marketplace was called the agora. So agorazo refers to the marketplace, and this word means to buy from the marketplace. And so when it says Jesus redeemed us, he bought us with the price of his own blood, agorazo. And it especially refers to agorazo, to slaves being bought for money in the marketplace. We were slaves to sin, and Jesus paid the price with his own blood to buy us, to redeem us. And that is the word used several times in the New Testament. But here Paul uses a slightly different variant of the word agorazo. All right? You never thought you were going to get a Greek uh, translation lesson this morning. He uses the word ex agorazo. And the reason I'm wanting to tell you this, bear with me. He added a two-letter prefix to it, but he changes the meaning. He added E-X. And what it means, it means to buy from the marketplace. Sorry. He strengthened this word for meaning to buy from the marketplace, agorazo. Now it means to buy out from the marketplace. And you may say that doesn't sound like much of a difference. Didn't, Jesus didn't just redeem us. He redeemed us out of it. Think of it this way. A slave might be bought from the marketplace but remain a slave. If I lived back then and I go to the marketplace, I pay money to purchase a slave, that slave now belongs to me. Is he out of slavery? No. He's in slavery to me. And let's just say he's not the strongest guy that I've ever, I've ever had on my property. And when I send him out into the fields to work, he doesn't get a lot done. He's not pulling the plow very well, not doing a great job. So I take him back to the Agora a few weeks later, and what do I do? I trade him in. I sell him back into slavery at the marketplace and buy another slave. That's what agorazo could mean. But ex-agorazo cannot mean that. What Paul is saying here is we've been bought out of the marketplace altogether. We've been redeemed from the marketplace. That's it. We've been taken off the market. And the culture of the times, on rare occasions, a friend or family member might come to the agora and purchase a slave for one purpose. Not to bring them to work for them. Purchase them to set them free. And that's what Paul says Jesus has done for us. He purchased us out of the marketplace, never to be slaves again. Yeah, never to be slaves again. How many people have thought that Jesus came to buy us out of slavery, out of the slavery of sin, to put us into the slavery of religion? 
Jesus said, not on your life. He's not delivering us back to the law. He's brought us out of the marketplace to be free, to walk with God as free men and women. And that's what Paul is saying here. And that led me to dig a little deeper into these words to something here in the English in the language that Paul uses that you couldn't read in English. My Greek teacher in college would be very happy of me. Paul uses three prepositions in this verse that tell us what God has done for us in Jesus. And this is the grammar of grace. Now watch this. All right, three prepositions. We've got here Christ. Let's throw that verse up. Galatians 3. We were under the curse of the law. And the first preposition here is the Greek word hypo. Christ has redeemed us. All right. Let me find it. from, From the, here it is here. Hypo. May look like, I don't know, HXPO, but that's my writing. All right. We were under the curse of the law. That's hypo. I want you to think about this for a moment. There's a story from the 4th century AD from Sicily about a man by the name of Damocles. And maybe you've heard about it. He was a courtier in the uh, the court of the king, and he was a bit of a flatterer. And he spoke to the, to, to the king, Dionysius, and he said, oh, you've got a great life. You're a great king. Look how wonderful you are in all your splendor. No one has had such a great life as you. What an amazing king you are. Dionysius said, oh, really? How about we trade places? And you see what it's like to be me. Damocles thought, what a wonderful idea. So they traded places for the day, and he enjoyed having the servants come and feed him grapes, and he enjoyed being able to do whatever he wanted, thinking this was marvelous until he looked up. Over his head, Dionysius, the king, had suspended a sword hanging by a horse's hair. Dionysius was making the point, you think it's great to be king? There are certain luxuries, sure, but I always live by the so- under a sword. That is, people always wanted to kill him. And this story is called the Sword of Damocles. And here's the thing. All of us in the law are living under the Sword of Damocles because we're all lawbreakers. And as soon as we pass from this life, we must pass into final judgment. And the absolute curse of being sent from God's presence forever and ever. We are under that. We are under that curse. And what separates you from hell, you may think that there's years, but if you don't know Jesus, and let's say you're a young person or an older person, and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you think you got time, it's a heartbeat. It's a breath. It's a horse's hair until you stand before him. We were, we were living in that condition under the curse of the law, but then Jesus came. So here we come back to Galatians 
Okay? For the second preposition, Christ has redeemed us from the hypo, from the course of the law, having become. All right? Here you go. And that word is hyper. Having become a curse for us. He came, here we are, here's the sword. He came between us, above us. So the sword is hanging over us. We're under the curse. But Jesus came above us, and in the process, he bore the cross, the curse on the cross. And then the third preposition is Jesus took us out. Remember, I already talked about it. Okay? X. Really bad writing. My mom would, like, not be happy. Let's just, like, not tell her this. Ex agarazzo. There you go. He took us from under the curse. He came above us, and in the process, he bore the curse and took us out of the marketplace, took us out of it completely. And there's a false idea that sometimes Christians fall into, fall into that Jesus came to do something and his death on the cross had something to do with it. But because Jesus did that, God lets us off of all of our sins. And we can do whatever we want anytime. It's not what the gospel says. Nothing has been let off at all. The sin has been completely paid for. The judgment was totally exacted. Jesus bore all the wrath of God on the cross. And that's why you have at that moment of dereliction on the cross where Jesus cries out and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore all of our curse. He took it and brought us out from under it, never to be there again. He has brought us back to the blessed state of being in communion with God, Mount Gerizim. We just celebrated Christmas a bit ago. And that time where we celebrate God the Father sending his son down to earth as a baby to bring about the redemption of the lawbreakers. And as the baby grew up, Jesus lived a perfect God-pleasing life. He kept the law of God perfectly. Not the traditions of man that were added to the law, but the law as Moses gave it. He kept it perfectly from his actions, but also from the heart. The words of his mouth, the very thoughts of his heart were all righteous. He walked in all the blessing of God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 30 years of evaluation of his life and God says he's perfect in every way in spite of the temptation in spite of living with our weak bodies he came and he fulfilled it completely but then he did the unimaginable having lived perfectly for us he interposed himself and died for us if only we would believe in him and on him if only we would trust him in him completely giving up trying to be good enough ourselves. Because we hear that so often today. I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. He exchanged his life for ours. 
He took the curse in our place so that we could be blessed. And that's where Paul arrives in verse 14. And I end with this, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Notice the blessing it does not say it is just for the Jewish people. Paul uses two expressions there in the one sentence. He says that the blessings might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise. Paul's not a Gentile. He's a Jew. And so what he's saying is that the Jews and the Gentiles together inherit all the blessings of Abraham. And Paul underlines again, Jesus Christ has brought us back full circle to the original promise. In you, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of earth will at last be blessed. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ today as your Savior, all of the blessings, all of the righteousness, all of the justification that was declared for Abraham is declared for you. But the bad news is, if you're trying to do this by religion or by yourself, you're cursed. Let's pray.